Well, tonight we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. The battle between Saul's house and David's house has been going on. Has been going on for two decades now. David was 15 years old when he was anointed by Samuel. And the conflict between him and Saul began almost immediately after David was anointed when the Spirit of God had come upon David and David had, was able to do many great works for the sake of Israel. Saul saw that very clearly, that the Lord was prospering him. Well, now at this point here in Second Samuel 4, David is now in his mid-30s. Saul is dead. Saul's son, Ishbosheth is carrying on the opposition that his father excelled at. But Saul's son wasn't as much of an aggressor as his father. When it came to establishing kingdom, his kingdom and, and expanding his kingdom, he wasn't really after it as much as Saul was. But he did have a commander whose name was Abner who was very concerned about establishing and advancing this kingdom. And so Abner continued to advance the throne of Ishbosheth by pitting northern, the northern tribes against the southern tribes. You remember they, they had this little gladiator battle that we saw last week in chapter 2. And Abner thought, you know, if I can overcome their best warriors, then I'll prove that, that our army is better than their army and we will have the victory. But instead, it backfired on him. Abner lost badly. Remember, he lost 360 compared to Joab's 19. And so the struggle continued. And since Ishbosheth's kingdom wasn't expanding, Abner decided that he was going to advance himself within the kingdom of Saul or the kingdom of Ishbosheth. And so he did that by sleeping with one of King Ishbosheth's lesser wives, concubine. And Ishbosheth knew what was going on, and he took offense to that act. And as a result, Abner said, Listen, I'm just trying to help here. I'm just trying to establish your kingdom. If you're going to take offense to it, then I'm taking all of our men, really, which are all my men, they're under my rule, I'm going to take them over to David. And, and he says, as the Lord lives. So he basically makes an oath before God that this is going to happen. I'm taking the men that belong to Saul over to David and we're going to, rule, we're, we're going to, to serve under his rule. And so he sets up a meeting with David. David and Avner seem to have a good meeting and they send David, David sends Abner away, remember, in peace. He left in peace. Multiple times says that in the text. But David's commander, Joab, was not too happy about that meeting. And Joab knew better that, that um, Abner was responsible, remember, for Joab's brother's death, Asahel. Remember Asahel, the fast one that was chasing after him. And um, Abner was responsible for his death. And also Joab knew that Abner was just blowing smoke. He didn't really care about submitting himself to David's rule. All he wanted to do was find out David's military uh, plans when he was going out and coming in. And so Joab called for a private meeting knowing that David would probably not do anything about it. So he calls for a pri private meeting uh, that David didn't know about. And in this private meeting, he murdered Abner in cold blood. David's response to this was not joy because the opposing commander was dead. Instead, it was grief and disdain, and he led um, really a procession of grief uh, for this Abner who really died innocently in that regard. 
And, and this was a sign to the nation that, that David had nothing to do with the murder of Abner. David wanted to make clear that he would not take his throne. He would not take the throne that God had even promised to him by force. He was going to wait on God's timing and do it in God's way, and he was not going to be responsible for these cold-blooded murders that were taking place under him. And he wasn't responsible. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 4. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Berathite, of the sons of, Benj- uh, of, the sons of Benjamin, for Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened <coughs> that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon, the Berathite, Rechab, and Baanah departed the, and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brothers, sons of Ramon the Berathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. In 2 Samuel 4, we see that when the lust for power threatens, our eyes must be fixed on God. When the lust for power threatens, our eyes must be fixed on God. And this applies really to both, to both um, David and to, to these two uh, evil men. Their desire was for power, as I think will, will be clear in the text. David's desire was not for, but I think there's a threat of that for him. That if he at any point allows his kingdom to take place over uh, God's desires, then he's going, to, um, he's going to fail. And so his eyes must be fixed on God, just as ours should be as well. First thing that we see in the text in verses 1-3 through is the weakening of Saul's house. The weakening of Saul's house. Isbosheth is troubled at the death of Abner. There you see that in verse 1. 
When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. He became weak. Remember, Ishbosheth is not a very powerful leader. He's really just a puppet in the hands of Abner. And so his puppet master is now dead. Puppet master was the one pulling all the strings. And if Abner's now dead, that means that Ishbosheth is very weak. And not only is he weak from the attacks from outside, but as we'll see, people from within his own army. He is defenseless against, against them. But notice the king is not the only one who's troubled by the death of Abner. Look at the end of verse 1. Who else is troubled? All Israel. Okay, so now when you think Israel here, don't think the entire nation like we think of it on a map today, but, but think of the northern tribes that were underneath the rule of Ishbosheth. So Ishbosheth the king was troubled because he knew he was now weak, but the whole tr- nation, the, the, the northern tribes there were all troubled as well because now they knew that the power did reside in Abner. And so when they found out that Abner was dead, they too were troubled. They were disturbed. I mean, the, the nation of Israel had been warring against David and the southern tribes of Judah. They had been warring against the Philistines. And so now with their strongest military commander, their strongest military leader now dead, how are they going to defend, to defend themselves? What if David decides to come and attack them? What if the Philistines decide to come back and take more territory. They know, like Ishbosheth, that they can't defend themselves. They can't advance their kingdom. Ishbosheth isn't capable of improving or sustaining their military position, and so they are disturbed as well. And so, two other commanders within the army of Israel decide that they're going to take care of the problem. If Abner's dead, Ishbosheth is not equipped to be our leader, then we need to do something. And here in verses 2 and 3, we don't get the answer of what they do, which is simply introduced to the two men. We'll find out what they do in verses 5 through 7. But what the author wants us to know first is where they're from. And notice in the text where they are from. Their names are Baana and Rechab in the middle of verse 2, sons of Ramon the Berathite. So they're, they're actually from from the Gibeonite area, in the area of Gibeon. Beeroth is, is, a, is, a, is a section within that land. Beeroth is two miles north of Jerusalem, and it's in one of the Gibeonite cities. And if you remember back from Joshua chapter 9, Joshua's task was to dispossess all the people in the land of Israel. God said, I'm going to give you the land and then as they win battles, God says, now you dispossess the Canaanites from the land and it's all yours. That's all you got to do. Well, um, these crafty messengers came from Gibeon, which was a city inside the promised land. See, Joshua was supposed to get rid of everybody inside the promised land. They came from within the land and they pretended to come from outside the land. They pretended to be foreigners. Like, we're not Canaanites. We just happened to be walking through the area. Do you remember what they did to, to make that case? How did they pretend? Okay, stale bread, worn clothes, right? And it's like, oh, these guys look like they've been walking for weeks. And, and David, without the key text there in, in Joshua chapter 9, is that, that David did not inquire of the Lord. So he didn't seek the Lord's help in that. And as a result, he fell into their trap. And as a result, he, he made a covenant with them that we will not do anything to harm you. Well, it wasn't very long before David found out that it was a trap. It was a trick. 
but he did not kill those people and he chose that he was going to follow through on that covenant um, even though he made it in haste and made it without the help of God. And so over the years, these Gibeonites who should have been killed and dispossessed from the land of Canaan, notice what happens to them here in verse 2. That now they become a part of the tribe of Benjamin. You see that? The Ramon the Berathite of the sons of Benjamin for Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin. The problem was that when Saul came around, Saul wasn't concerned about the promises that Joshua had made. According to 2 Samuel 21, which is still uh, in the future, it actually talks about what Saul does to these Gibeonites. And one of the things that he does is he kills many of them against the covenant that Joshua had made. Which is why verse 3 says that the Gibeonites had to flee to Gittaim. They had to flee to another land because they had this covenant with the people of Israel, but Saul breaks it. And so they had to flee. So what that means is that these two men were part of a family here in verse 2. Rechab and and Baanah were part of a family who were under the rule of Saul's son. And, and who had an oath with Israel that was betrayed by Israel's king, at least the king's father, Ishbosheth's father, Saul. And so, with that in mind, what happens when they have an opportunity to harm Saul's house? Right? Saul's now off the picture, out of the picture. Saul's done some damage to their own family. They're in some way part of the people of Israel. And now that they're weakened with Abner dead, they see this as an opportunity to capitalize and kill Saul's son. Perhaps out of revenge, perhaps to advance their own position. We'll see, well, we'll see a little bit more about that here when we get to verses 5 through 7. But before we get there, the author stops the narrative. Before he tells what happens, he stops the narrative in verse 4 to show us that there's there's really, if Ishbosheth dies, there's no one fit to re- replace him. There's no one in the line of Saul that could replace him. That's what verse 4 is about. And we see um, the last hope in Saul's house really is Ishbosheth because Mephibosheth is not. In verse 4, we're introduced to Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son. Jonathan, you remember, died in battle with his father. And when the report of Jonathan and and Saul, the news of their death came back to the city. The nurse who was caring for Jonathan's son, who was five at the time, uh, was in a hurry to get out of the city because she knew that the Philistines were going to be coming there next. And in a hurry, she, she dropped him apparently, and he became lame. And so what the text is saying is that we have this guy who's he kind of be next in line after Ishbosheth, but the problem is he's he's too young. And he's not fit to be king. He's crippled. So at that time, that was when he was five years old. This is probably seven years later. Okay, so he's probably twelve years old. And and so if Ishbosheth is dead, he's not equipped, especially with no military commander to help him. He's not equipped to be king. That's what the text is saying. That's what the author wants us to know. That that there's this man Ishbosheth is the last hope for Saul's house. And then in verses five through eight, we see the heinous sin of power seekers. The heinous sin of power seekers. This is where the story continues and shows us 
the murder of Ishbosheth. These two Gibeonites decide that the best way to avenge the deaths of their own family at the hands of Saul is to take it out on Saul's son, the king. Perhaps it would mean a better position for them. Perhaps it would mean that they would uh, be, be ranked much higher in the army. Abner's gone. Ishbosheth's dead. They could take their, their work over to David, which they're going to do, show him what, what they have done, and hopefully David will promote them. So they go to the palace to collect their wages for fighting in the king's army. Army And verse 6 tells us that their wages apparently were wheat. That's how they got their paycheck. And instead of going down the hallway that took them to the wheat storehouse, they got down the hallway to Ishbosheth's bedroom where he's taking his midday rest and they kill him in his sleep. This shows the weakness of Ishbosheth that he had no proper protection. You know, with Abner dead, he didn't have apparently a proper setup for, for a bodyguard, someone to protect him while he was vulnerable. But I think it also shows the weakness and the heartlessness of these Gibeonite men, doesn't it? That they would kill someone not while he was attacking. Not, they didn't approach him or confront him. Instead, they kill him in his sleep. And so with the main mission accomplished, they felt they had a follow-up mission. And the follow-up mission is found at the end of verse 7, that after they killed him, they beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled through the night to Arabah. Arabah is about 55 miles away. And they would have traveled through the valley so that they would be um, hidden from, from view. And they arrive in the presence of David and they give the report of victory to David, thinking, if anyone is going to appreciate this work that we have done in killing David's enemy, it will be David. And so here's the head of your enemy. They bring the head to David and say, here it is, the one who sought your life. Look at that in verse 8, in the middle of the verse. Behold, the head of Ishbosheth the king, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Your arch rival's now dead, King David. Saul's throne is no more. We killed the son. What are you going to do for us? You know, we did this. You're welcome. When do you want us to stand and, and be promoted? That was the idea. But notice they think that they're being led by God. This is an interesting um, note that the author puts into the text. In the second part of verse 8, it says, Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. In other words, God was leading us to do this. God led us to kill your enemy, David. And so what that tells us is that not everyone who says that God is behind their actions is right. right. Have you ever heard people say, well, God led me to do... And then you're thinking, well, I don't think God would lead you to do that. You know, maybe it's a, a warring spouse who said, you know, God would want me to be happy. And so I'm fighting, so, so I'm filing for divorce. You know, God would want me to be happy. God is leading me to divorce my spouse. See? And, and instead, and, and the hard part about that is we have to try to argue with someone who claims to be, to be doing something on behalf of God. And I would just caution you to be careful 
about using God, you personally using God as a way to justify your actions, your sinful actions. You know, God was leading me to do this. And I would also caution you to to guard against those people who do that sort of thing and maybe take it with a grain of salt. Maybe don't have to approach them about it right there, but, but maybe a response with a question. Do you know... How do you know that God is really behind that action? Right? I mean, where in the Scriptures does it say that it's right for you to to divorce your spouse because of irreconcilable differences? Right? So, um, not everything that calls itself gold is gold. Not everyone who claims to be working on behalf of God is God. It is from God. All right? Next, in verses 9-12, through 12, we see the, the wise response by a selfless king. The wise response by a selfless king. David knew that God was not behind the death of Ishbosheth in the way that the Gibeonites thought God was. And David was not in favor of, if, of Ishbosheth's death and they thought he would be. And you know, David would be in favor of Ishbosheth's death if... David's primary concern were the advancement of his own name. If his primary concern were the advancement of his own earthly kingdom, <coughs> excuse me, he might have been willing to deny God and exalt himself, but instead he remembered the faithfulness of God and was loyal to God first of all. He did not take pleasure in the death even of his enemy. In order to show this to the Gibeonite men, David told them the story about when he learned of the death of Saul in verse 10. He says, you know, when, when the Amalekite came and told me the news of Saul's death, they thought they were bringing me good news. And do you know what the reward was for that news? What was the reward? It was his own death. You see, David was relentlessly concerned about doing things God's way and in God's time, even though Saul was his number one enemy at the time. Saul was the one who was pursuing him. And David said, I'm not going to take his life from him. If God wanted to, God could kill Saul at any time, just like he did with Nabal. Remember Nabal? Nabal was a, a foolish man. And David didn't kill him. But you know who did? God did. And David just waited on God's timing and God took care of the situation. You see, if God brings about the death, that's his prerogative. But David's not going to be impatient or impulsive in bringing about the death of his enemy. And so when the Amalekite claimed to have killed Saul, David said the, the reward for that was the Amalekite's own death. But in verse 11, David saying to these two men, listen, what you've done is much worse than the Amalekite. Because if the Amalekite were telling the truth, then he was killing Saul only because Saul didn't want to be tortured and because Saul asked him to. Remember? That was the claim. Saul was on the brink of death, but if he would probably go on living for, for many more hours and the Philistines would, would finally catch up to him, capture his body, and torture him and parade his body all over the place and make a public spectacle of him. They would defame him. So Saul says, according to the Amalekite, you know, would you kill me? Would you, would you just end it for me? So in that case, he, he had somewhat of a, of, a, of a case for his killing of Saul. But what the Gibeonites did, David's saying, 
was extremely vile. It was much worse than what the Amalekites did. They were only doing what seemed right to them. And notice what David calls them. In verse, what he calls Ishbosheth. Uh, verse 11. So if, if the Amalekite did that and his reward was death, verse 10, then verse 11, how much more when, a wicked, when wicked men, you two Gibeonites, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? What's he saying? Okay, for, for Saul, there was some kind of excuse. There was, there was some proper reasoning for why he would be killed in that situation. And he still, that, that messenger still died. But for you two, you killed someone in cold blood. You killed a, an innocent man. That's the idea of, of righteous there. Not that he was a godly believer or anything like that. In other words, he didn't do anything that deserved your, your killing of him. He didn't do anything worthy of your death, of your, your killing of him. And David, I think, is setting a strong precedent here that we're not going to be like the other nations who are gripped by a lust for power. And so when one person takes the throne, uh, you know, they kill their family members, or when one person takes the throne, someone who's stronger kills the king, and, and all sorts of assassinations going on. He's saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to establish this throne in this way. We're not going to be marked by that. Because all that's going to do is if I am going to kill in order to get my position and maintain my position, then that's only going to breed more violence. David said, I didn't attain my throne this way and I'm not going to extend my throne in this way. And so, in verse 12, David orders that these Gibeonites be killed and also made into a public spectacle because he wanted the, the people of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel as well. Both you, both groups, both, um, both groups of people, that they would know that not only was David not responsible for it, he didn't order this death, but also David was not behind. He was not in favor of this death. He was not happy with the death of Ishbosheth. And David gives Ishbosheth a proper burial at the end of verse 12. He buries him with Abner. So when the lust for power threatens, our eyes must be fixed on God. These two men failed when the temptation came. They had this opportunity to advance their own position and to maybe take out a little vengeance on, 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 um, on the son of the one who killed many of their own family. And they even claimed to be working on behalf of God. Maybe even thought that God Himself was aligned with had aligned their circumstances so that it worked out perfectly, so that when they were going to receive their paycheck of wheat, that, that it worked out that there was no one there to, to guard them or, or keep them from this act of bravery in their minds. But it wasn't God that was leading them. It was really a desire for revenge and a lust for greater power. Certainly, David will reward us. That's the idea. We... It, David, when he hears of this, he will be happy and he will promote us into his, in his army. And so they fall for this lust for power and it becomes the end of them. David could have fallen in the same trap, couldn't he? David could have been more concerned about his own kingdom rather than God's purposes. And that leads us to the first principle to consider tonight. And it is this. The small choices in our life are an indication of what is in our heart. 
The small choices in our life are an indication of what is in our heart. We might look at our lives and think that the small choices in life don't really matter. And so, you know, when the little temptation comes, we can concede. Just one little sin. Because we know, we know our strength spiritually, right? We know that we're not going to give in to the big sin. We're not going to give in to the scandalous sin. We would never do the thing that shows up on the news. We would never do that. So it, it doesn't matter if I just give up on this little one. It's just one. If you're thinking that way tonight, can I just tell you, the seed of that kind of thinking comes from the very pit of hell. That is exactly what Satan, this world, and your flesh want you to think. That the little choices in life don't matter. That you can give in to the little sins and still be protected from the bigger ones. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is that the small choices in life are an indication of who you are. Your life is made up of small choices. And the, the accumulation of small choices are what lead to your bigger choices. And the nature of sin is such that when we give in to those little temptations, they don't give us the same kind of pleasure that they once did, and so we need something a little bigger. So let me ask you tonight, what little choices are you compromising on right now? What is it that you've justified in your mind? And just marked off into the category of, you know, oh well, the err is human. I'm sinful. I, I'm human. I, I sin. What little temptations are pressing against you and overpowering you? Maybe it's the sin of lust. Maybe you think it's okay to take one more look or to think one more vile thought. It's not like I'm going to divorce my spouse. Not like I'm going to commit some vile act of immorality. I'd never do that. But let me just say that that lustful thought, that second glance, is a vile act of immorality. And don't minimize it because everyone else is doing it. Or because everyone else is doing it worse. I mean, I look around me. I know a lot of people who seem to have a pretty good life and they're doing a lot worse things than I am. Sure, it's not public and scandalous now, but where do you think public and scandalous sins start? They don't start when someone says, you know what, I really want to get my name in the news. I want to really wreck my family and never be able to, to recover from such a terrible travesty. It doesn't start like that. It starts with the little choices, doesn't it? What temptations are pressing against you and overpowering you? What little temptations seem to be of little concern? Maybe it's the sin of pride. Maybe the little sins that appeal to you are the praises of your peers. Maybe you love to be noticed and you love for people to recognize your accomplishments. I mean, why doesn't anyone recognize how humble I am? No one ever talks about my humility. I mean, don't they see it? You might think very little of those kinds of sins. 
But do you realize that the sin of pride is the downfall of God's chief angel, Lucifer? The sin of pride is what has sunk many spiritual leaders and have caused them to turn away from the faith. And so if we give in to those little sins, before long we'll be embracing them, won't we? The praise of men and and embracing that kind of pride is like carrying fire in your arms. There's no way to avoid being burned. And I think, well, it's just, just this little fire. But again, eventually we will be burned. Maybe for you it's the sin of greed. I just need a little bit more money. Or if I just had a few more things, if I could get a few more toys, then I would be satisfied. But do you know... A little more is never enough, is it? The desire for a little bit more is what derailed Judas. He was even willing to sell out the one who befriended him and cared for him for just 30 pieces of silver. All it starts with is our willingness to give in to the little temptations, the little sins. And I think David recognized this point. He was not going to be characterized by someone who gave in to the little sins. He saw the bigger picture. He could have easily overlooked the death of Ishbosheth, and he said, you know what? They chose to do it, so I'm going to benefit from it. He could have let these men go who killed Ishbosheth. But David knew this, while seemingly small in the big scheme of things, in the big scheme of things, was not insignificant. How he responded in this situation was critical to his leadership. And that leads us to this next principle, which is that the small choices in our life are determined by our perspective. The small choices in our life are are determined by our perspective and the larger choices, by the way. If we're going to see the smaller choices in proper light, then we need to keep the bigger picture in view. Right? It's like a factory worker who keeps asking, you know, why am I doing the same thing over and over again? I put the same bolt in the same motor over and over and over again. I've been doing it for 20 years. Why? And if he doesn't keep the big picture in view, then he's going to give up on quality and efficiency, isn't he? He's not going to be concerned if the part is made or assembled correctly. He's not going to be concerned if it's done rightly. You see, if we don't have the bigger picture and perspective, we're not going to do what we're called to do well. It's like an airline mechanic who says, you know, what's the point of another maintenance check? I've done the same maintenance check for the last 30 days in a row. Do I really need to do it one more time? You see, if he gets his eyes off of the bigger pictures, the pic- bigger picture, then, then he's going to cut corners and put his own, potentially, other lives in danger. And so if we're going to make right choices in the smaller things and in the larger things when it comes to our life spiritually, then we have to have proper perspective. And that what, that's what makes the example of David so helpful. You see, he wasn't concerned about immediate gratification. He wasn't concerned primarily about the praise of men. 
His primary focus was on the bigger picture. His primary focus was on God's purposes being accomplished in God's way, in God's timing. And he wasn't going to shortcut his way to God getting what he wanted. And we need to have God's purposes in view as well. If we live with God's purposes in view and, and are only willing to pursue those purposes in His way and in His timing, then do you know what happens to all the little choices? Every single one of them is important. How I live my life, how I respond to my child or my spouse or my friend is important. Oh, it's just one outburst of anger. But in the big picture we live for the glory of god and see all these little choices we don't start justifying them or explaining them away you know anybody could have done that or i i had the right to after all that i've been through no we see them as critical to our own spiritual walk with god our own spiritual growth christian god has entrusted us with a job and God expects us to do the job that we've been given, just like the factory worker or the airline mechanic. He expects us to do the job in a specific way. We may not see the bigger picture or all the implications of what we're doing, but how you live matters. How I live matters. Our spiritual life is at stake, and the lives of others are at stake as well. And if we just ignore or explain away or justify these little choices, before long they will be big choices and they will have serious spiritual ramifications for ourselves and others. When the lust for power threatens, we need to have our eyes fixed on God. That's the bigger picture. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to think of the the path that David had to the throne and how he did not um, did not skip um, skip around when it came to your glory, did not um, care little about your purposes and doing things according to your will and your timing. Instead, he took and paid careful attention to what you desired of him so that even when circumstances worked out for his favor, his enemies were killed, he did not take pleasure in those things knowing that they were not done in the right way or the right time. Lord, we so often move on ahead of you. That is, you have a purpose for something to happen in your timing and we can't wait that long. We become impatient and impulsive and we take matters into our own hands and gifts that you were planning to give us in your timing, we take in our own timing and many times suffer the consequences for it because we've done it according to our own purposes rather than yours. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be better about seeing the bigger picture. We pray that you'd help us to be better about eliminating the little sins, the little temptations, Lord, help us not to justify them in our minds, but to own up to them, confess them before you, and forsake them. 
or that's the mark of believers, that they are turning from their sins, not embracing them. So help us to do that, we pray. In the power that comes from Jesus Christ through your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.